Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Well, welcome everyone. I'm delighted to be joined today by Fiona Hill, who should need no introduction, but just in case, she is, of course, the former Deputy Assistant to the US President and Senior Director for European and Russian Affairs on the National Security Council. She's now the Robert Bosch Senior Fellow at the Centre of the US Europe at the Brookings Institute. And we know from her time with the previous administration that she is not someone not only with vast experience, but also moral courage. Now, uh, our audience uh, will have a chance to ask questions uh, towards the end, which you can do through the Q&A function. But uh, Fiona, I want to cover a lot of ground today. So shall we start with Russia? Now, we've seen the Biden administration's initial approach to Russia, which has been firm on sanctions and also seen the recent meeting between Presidents Biden and Putin in Geneva, which you said went as well as could be anticipated and which got a gut dialogue going at least about arms control and cyber. Now, looking at its approach so far, does this administration essentially see Russia as a problem to be managed, not hoping for anything more and trying to avoid anything worse? And do you think that would be the right approach? I think that's absolutely right, Denzel. That's exactly how they see it. <clears throat> I mean, I think it's no secret to anyone. And unfortunately, I would actually say they've probably telegraphed this a bit too explicitly that China is the main area of concern on the foreign policy front. I mean, there are lots of other issues as well, but that's the main priority, at least in terms of the strategic thinking about uh, US foreign policy and you know where they want most of the focus to be. And in that regard, then, yes, Russia really is the problem to be managed. And to be honest, I think that's really the only approach that one can take at this particular juncture. That has probably been the case, let's say, at least since the invasion of Georgia by the Russians back in 2008, uh, which certainly put paid to any of the thoughts at that uh, juncture of a reset in relationships under the Obama administration. And if we look back over the sweep of presidents since Gorbachev and Reagan, H.W. Bush and onwards with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the efforts to create a new working relationship with post-Soviet Russia, every U.S. president has come up short on any effort to create, be it a strategic partnership, which was a bit of the fantasy of the Clinton administration in the Boris Yeltsin era, to anything even uh, resembling any kind of cordial uh, relationship. We're not even frenemies, I would say, at this particular juncture. So it's a very confrontational relationship that's emerged definitely over the uh, last uh, 10 years and maybe a little bit beforehand. And at that point, it's how to manage that confrontation, which is the number one priority. Thank you. Well, I think that sets the, the framework in which we should see things very, very clearly. Um, there's been one measure that might be regarded, perhaps inadvertently, as a little bit more positive by Russia which is President Biden's decision to lift some of the sanctions connected to Nord Stream 2. And that's been criticized by both uh, the Republicans and foreign policy hawks within the Democratic Party. Democratic Party. Was this all about removing a problem in the relationship with Germany or were there other reasons? And how does the administration weigh that gain against the disappointment among Eastern European allies and the degree of satisfaction it <clears throat> Moscow? Well, that's, there's also a much larger frame for this as well. I mean, the first immediate answer to your uh, question, you know, very directly is yes, it was indeed removing a problem with Germany. 
because over time, the standoff, as it were, over the Nord Stream 2 pipeline had become more about Germany and US-German relationships than anything else. And that was very much the focal point under the uh, previous administration. President Trump was increasingly frustrated with Germany, seeing Germany, frankly, as a European manufacturing economic uh, powerhouse that was never not even punching anywhere close to its weight and in his view was sort of free riding and he was very explicit about this and so no surprise to anyone listening to this I, I suspect and free riding and freeloading and you know you name it and he wanted to teach uh, Germany a lesson his main point was if Russia is the enemy as you keep telling me Angela Merkel had very early on in his tenure asked him what the United States was going to do for example about Ukraine uh, all of the debates about burden sharing in NATO and Germany not covering 2% of GDP in its uh, defense uh, allocations. Um, basically, Trump was saying, well, you know, if, if Russia is a problem, why are you basically engaging in this multi-billion dollar pipeline deal with them? I don't get it. You're the problem. So, um, you know, that was the way that that was trending. And Biden, I think, just wanted to cut that off because also uh, the fact of the matter is that the pipeline was extraordinarily close to completion by this juncture. I mean, during the four years of the Trump administration, there was all kinds of sidestepping and behind the scenes, um, let's just say, maneuvering to slow it down as much as possible. We saw the Swedes try, the Danes try, and, you know, inevitably it was kind of getting itself <clears throat> very close to completion. So the question was, okay, is it really kind of worth the effort here, especially as it's become such a major flashpoint with Germany and is actually disrupting uh, broader relationships perhaps with the European Union as well. The other larger firm for this, of course, is the United States has been opposed to pipelines from the Soviet Union and Russia bringing gas to Europe since the 1970s and 1980s. So it should hardly be a surprise to Germany and anyone else that the United States was opposed to the Soviet era pipelines Nord Stream 1, and I was in the uh, government in the National Intelligence Council during the Nord Stream 1 standoff, in which we you know, tried to stop that from happening as well, failed. And then obviously Nord Stream 2, the second of the, you know, the same uh, pipeline. So I think the uh, question is now, what is, if, if we were so focused on Nord Stream 2, we might have missed uh, the ability to do something else to actually diminish the significance of this. This has become in a way a largely symbolic fight, although there's actually real consequences, obviously, from it. And why not instead focus on how to wean Ukraine away from its dependency on transit fees from uh, Russian pipeline? Because it doesn't seem like a very smart idea over the longer term for Ukraine to be dependent. Russia still has a lot of leverage, even if Nord Stream 2 didn't exist, if all of the gas pipelines were going through Ukraine. And how can Ukraine be more fully integrated into uh, pipeline and other infrastructure in Europe. That was what the Three Seas Initiative was supposedly about that the United States embraced for a period. Lots of discussions behind the scenes with the Germans on how to make this right and how to uh, basically support Ukraine, how to make Ukraine part of a larger economic and uh, political sphere within Europe, irrespective of whatever happens on NATO and the European Union Association agreements. So there's a lot more areas where the US could be focused. And I think that's what people are trying to see now. So, okay, we've given Germany a pass on Nord Stream 2. It wasn't really Russia, even though it's obviously the operating uh, company, which has got a pretty strong Russian presence there. But what happens next? And I, I think that's the kind of question mark is, is there going to be a deal on the next steps be between the United States and Germany behind the scenes 
But of course, we have the election in Germany in September for a new chancellor, as well as a new coalition. So I guess we'll be probably be asking this question from here to through September and onwards. Thank you. It's really helpful in understanding the, the bigger picture. I mean, the success you talk about in, in reorienting how Ukraine uh, makes a living uh, and giving it a, a different orientation um, will depend in part on good coordination on Russia policy between the EU and the US. But how good do you think that uh, coordination currently is? I mean, we saw, of course, from the machine gunning, the Franco-German proposal a summit with Putin, which it got at the last European Council that uh, uh, coordination on Russia policy within the EU could do uh, with some improvement. But do you think that proposal for, uh, for a Franco-German summit with Putin was a good idea? And do you think that the reason that the French and German leaders felt they wanted to put themselves forward shows that they still, still haven't found a good understanding on how to do foreign policy together between EU leaders and the US? I think that's right, Denzel. I mean, actually, ironically, and this may seem ironic to people, at the very beginning of the Trump administration, there was quite a lot of coordination. Um, under you know successive national security advisors, but then as you know we know there was so much turnover. I and mean, this is behind the scenes. I wouldn't say that this was at the top level, but just at the kind of the working level, the kind of you and me pass kind of thing. There's a lot of coordination about what should we do, but that broke down with all of the constant changes in um, in personnel. And I think that's really kind of the problem now. You've had the new administration come in. They haven't got all of their um, key people in place. I mean, obviously there's Toria Newland and Wendy Sherman, in addition to uh, Tony Blinken, but we're waiting really for the assistant secretary level. Karen Donfrey's been named, but it's kind of, which I think would make a big uh, difference, in fact, in terms of coordination, given her background and you know the way that everyone knows her. Uh, similar counterpart with Celeste Wallander at the Pentagon. I mean, there are, there are personnel appointments here that presage, I would say, a very good possible um, coordination, but we're not there yet. And so um, I think it really does take uh, a lot, lot more of a heavy lift. You touched on France and Germany there. And again, I think you're right. There was a sort of a rush to say, oh, hang on, we're still in the game here. Uh, of course, President Macron had already signaled that he wanted to be in the lead diplomatically with uh, Russia and the anticipation of change in Germany. And I'm sure from the Russians' point of view, they're, they're looking at Germany and France, with Macron also having to put himself up for re-election, thinking, why should we bother at this point in meeting with the two of you? So I do think there also needs to be a different approach to how we're coordinating. It can't just be through the kind of usual suspects, because an awful lot of policy toward Russia is shaped by Russia's interactions with a whole set of countries, not just France and Germany or even the UK, where, of course, you know, the relationship is under a lot of stress from all the inevitable things that have um, accumulated since the Skripal poisoning and all of the other difficulties in uh, the, the relationship with the UK. And obviously, Russia is testing to see how much the uh, UK will be able to coordinate its policy approaches, not just with NATO, with the you know, standoff in the uh, Black Sea, but also with the European Union, not sure how that relationship is going to take place. But there's also the relationships with the key uh, Scandinavian countries and countries like Denmark and the Netherlands and Switzerland. Uh, and others that have actually, you know, had to have difficult sets of relationships uh, with Russia as well, either because the Russians have hacked something like the Swiss labs or the OPCW in The Hague, for example, or in the case of the Finns, the Swedes and uh, the Norwegians, they're always trying to kind of manage uh, this relationship in uh, different ways. When I was at the NSC, we started to explore thinking about a different constellation of countries to help manage the relationship with Russia. 
And I think that that's what we need. We need some creative thinking. We need to have the personnel in place. And we do have to be willing to have different configurations of countries as a kind of task force where we can coordinate policy. It's entirely possible, but we just don't have all of the players in, uh, in place at this juncture, which makes this current situation, sadly, somewhat dangerous because it means that Putin has the advantage that he can, you know, kind of while we're still sort of shifting ourselves around, he can kind of press forward with whatever it is he wants to get our attention with. Thank you. Well, I think I mean, we can all agree that be a wonderful world where American administrations were able to uh, put their people in place a little bit more quickly. And, and of course, you're right that um, you know, what the Franco-German experience of the, Frank of the European Council showed is that an attempt by just one or two to run the relationship simply won't work. But we can come back to that network of relationships a little bit later. Just to focus on, on a specifically American aspect of the relationship with Russia. Um, we had the hack on SolarWinds and Microsoft, which is believed to have been perpetrated by Russia late last year. And that's raised awareness of, the America, of America's cyber vulnerabilities. Do you think these kinds of attacks will become endemic? And what do you think the impact will be on the public and private sectors? Well, I think they're already endemic and we're already feeling the impact, right? I mean, if you were a, a patient at the NS, NHS and uh, the NotPetya, uh, you know, the virus that was spread around which was of course the Russians trying to attack Ukraine got out of control you know you had your operations suspended because the whole systems went down and that's a couple of years ago already you realize that you're going to have an impact the ransomware attacks uh, closing down the uh, pipeline here for petroleum uh, supplies here in the United States meat packing plants I mean we can really see that this is already uh, a, a problem that you know is long past uh, due in terms of having a coherent response to it and it has to be an all of society response it has to be the you and me and how we kind of set up authentication for our private um, email accounts I actually haven't had a private email account in years precisely because of the problems of thinking about how do you stop you know kind of uh, hacking it's a, it's something of a dilemma for you know the average person who's not a techie so for um, when it comes for um, the uh, you know companies, the corporate side, as well as governments. I mean, we really have to have tight coordination. I mean, as we also know, um, in looking back over the trajectory, uh, going back to, I would say, 2015, 2016, the Russians have just had a free-for-all in hacking, uh, and, and also in terms of criminal groups. It wasn't just the um, US election or the DNC and, you know, private... Um, uh, official uh, emails or officials' private emails. There was the hacking of the German Bundestag uh, email system and the chancellors um, around that same period, the French um, elections, as I said, the OPCW in The Hague, the Swiss labs, the, uh, the, the Tokyo, uh, another um, Olympics. I mean, it goes on and on and on. So we, we've had a problem for a long period now. I think the question is really the structures that we create because the problem as it is right now, is that this is a kind of a, a pretty much centralized effort to get at us. And, you know, the fact that, um, you know, these ransomware attacks happening, of course, the Russian government could rein them in if they wanted to. And they don't because it's part of, part of the plan. It's fantastic to be able to say, well, the Russian state has nothing to do with this. I heard Vladimir Putin say that with my own ears in one of the meetings when he basically told myself and Ambassador Bolton, well, the Russian state wasn't us. We're like, yeah, of course it wasn't you, you know, sitting there in the Kremlin hacking into the computers because it's not even clear that he uses an email in any case. You know, so it's very easy to kind of say, well, not my responsibility, hands off and just let this kind of go forward. So we have to have a concerted, coordinated effort 
to get after uh, these hacking groups, seize their assets, you know, basically shut down their operations, but also knowing that this will keep going because if we cut them off on one front, they will keep on trying. So we have to have really good coordination ourselves and some degree of centralization of effort at the same time, certainly coordination of effort. And who needs to be part of that coordination for it to be effective? Does it have to include the Russian authorities or does it mean uh, affected countries, the US and others, taking action which might reach into Russian territory so that uh, the people who do perpetrate this feel some real uh, penalty for what they're doing? I think it's the latter to get the former because they're not going to actually, um, you know, they're, they're, they're not going to uh, basically deal with, you know, a cyber equivalent of Interpol unless they're actually forced to, unless it becomes painful. You know, and right now, the fact that most of these ransomware attacks, um, you know, seem to be avoiding, you know, Cyrillic, unless we put Cyrillic on everybody's computer and all of us are starting to, you know, now do conversion from, you know, kind of our regular, you know, systems into Cyrillic, we're obviously not going to be able to, you know, head these guys off of the past. So we have to be able to, you know, uh, push back at them in such a way that they realize that they need to start to rein this in. As uh, President Biden said, well, what if? You know, you were basically having these same attacks from somebody sitting there in Maine or in Florida. Well, the problem is, of course, as we also know, that the Russians could easily be using computer systems in Maine or Florida, that being the nature of, uh, of the Internet and, uh, you know, the, the technical access that's possible. But we basically have to have a concerted effort. And it has to be companies like uh, all of the kind of the major cybersecurity companies. A lot of people who were in government have now, uh, like Chris Krebs, you know, my former colleague, you know, for example, have gone out now and set up their own private companies. I would say the more the better, as long as we're all coordinated. And, uh, you know, uh, people like your clients, the people listening today to kind of really take all of this seriously and the average person as well to be just much more mindful. I mean, I worry every time I pick up my phone, has it suddenly become a bot or has it you know, kind of been penetrated? If I see the a hint of Cyrillic on my emergency call, which I did the other day, I'm immediately switching it off and trying to kind of, you know, figure out. We have to be that paranoid because yeah. we have to be aware that, you know, uh, that, uh, someone is trying to access our systems. Um, you know, to get hold of our, our databases and information to be able to, you know, get further phishing attempts. We all just have to have, you know, really good cyber security and cyber awareness. So uh, talking about touching on another issue where perhaps we need to be a little bit more paranoid on Russia's disinformation campaigns. What can countries do to better protect the safety and security of their elections? And are tech companies doing enough or should we look at, be looking both in Europe and the US and elsewhere, about new legal responsibilities for them to do more. I think that's right. That um, we, we do need more. And I do think we do need new authorities or legal responsibilities to, to be able to step up here. <clears throat> so this, this is a major effort, frankly. And of course, I mean, it's important, uh, and the UK um, has actually taken this approach in the task forces that uh, you know, were set up uh, when you were in government. Uh, have been trying to look at this from the point of view of all hostile state actors and non-state actors. It's the tools and the instruments. So what authorities do you need to be able to tackle that in a comprehensive way? You can't be just rushing after the Russian threat while there's others who could be um, either copycatting or bandwagoning or you know, also doing something different. I mean, I think we can also see from some of the ways we've been caught out that we focus on one problem. For example, you know, during the election in the, the United States in 2020, 
we were fixated on election security. And I'm not saying that the Solowins necessarily then, you know, kind of moved into the kind of the gaps of our attention, but there's a pretty good um, uh, case that could be made that we weren't being quite as attentive as we should have been on looking for those kinds of, um, of attacks because we were so worried again about a repeat of 2016 or 2018 and heading off uh, the penetration of election systems to maintain, um, you know, election security and the integrity of the vote. So I think we just basically have to have our best minds at this. Also being uh, very much aware that we have to uh, take as broad a view as possible and have legal instruments that are flexible to enable us to go after the problem once it adapts. And as you were saying at the very beginning, it can't just be sanctions. I mean, we have to take a, a good offensive defense. So we have to make it painful uh, for the people who are um, you know, basically uh, you know, trying to perpetrate uh, these uh, these attacks. I mean, they're doing it because they can, and because it's profitable to them in some way. So we have to make it first of all, so they can't blunt it in some way, even if you know we're not kind of being able to get right into um, their systems as well to um, you know kind of close them down, but blunt the blunt the effect and make it um, unprofitable. I mean, it's it's the classic problem that now we have um, you know people having to pay the ransom. Uh, to be able to get their systems back up again. And then they try to kind of recoup the money after the fact, but we have to, you know, make it very difficult for them to be able to do that in the first place and find ways of freezing those assets and getting hold of the assets that the people are taking. Yes, well, that's a you know, clear message that we need to be more robust than we've been, perhaps been over the past few years. Um, going back to something you were talking about earlier, and as you said, you know, this administration has said very, very clearly that their foreign policy focus is China, China, China. Uh, and that thus you know, Russia's relationship to be managed. Does, is there any thinking going on that you know, there is a chance the administration should be looking to uh, introduce some uh, disunity between Russia and China, put it to the Russians that their long-term interests are, are better served by being closer to the West than Beijing? Or is that, to get, to get away from the basic fact, is that we have an American, a Russian government that has its fundamental interests about what, what is good for the people in charge of the Russian government rather than uh, the Russian, uh, the country of Russia as a whole. And so we just got to live with the fact that they are as they are and have that focus on China. Well, I think we have to accept the fact that they are as they are, which is the latter, that they're very much focused on themselves and self-preservation at this particular point. But that also um, indicates that there is a really good reason for them trying to not just cozy up to China, but turn the relationship with China into a strategic partnership. And that actually does not bode well for the United States or the West overall either, which also means that we have to you know, think creatively about how we can address this and not just give up on it. I mean, I'm of the, of the, the view pretty firmly now based on experience and observation you know, over the last um, several years that Russia needs that managed confrontation with the United States in particular, but also with NATO and, you know, to other lesser and larger degrees, the European Union and, you know, the European countries. Because um, for Russia, it's recognizing, like all the rest of us are, that China is the system dominator, that China is the force to be reckoned with, and Russia wants to be the worthy equal partner to China, which of course it's not going to be, at least on the equal side, right? Because of the vast uh, imbalances, uh, not in territory, obviously Russia's territory kind of shadows, outshadows everyone else's, but in terms of uh, population, innovation, 
you know, technological capability, size of the economy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And even on the uh, nuclear arsenal front, China is now kind of nipping at everyone's heels, building up, particularly in the intermediate nuclear um, uh, force range, which Russia is deeply concerned about. I think that's really why they were violating INF. It wasn't necessarily about the United States, who was, you know, pretty handily constrained by INF in terms of um, intermediate uh, missile, uh, ballistic missile development, but it's China and where China was really taking off there. Same with tactical nuclear weapons too. And now with the strategic arsenal, there's a concern. And obviously on the conventional front, China is really up there now. And uh, Russia, of course, remains very concerned about the capabilities and capacities of the United States on the conventional uh, front. They're very worried about our precision long range uh, missiles, for example, which are just as concerning to them as nuclear missiles. But I really don't think, apart from in some extremely paranoid circles in the military and around the Kremlin, that they really anticipate that the United States would engage in a first strike. And certainly not when everyone's signaling, both from Trump to Biden, hey, hey, you know, no, we're not looking for a confrontation here. And it's China, China, China. I mean, I think strategically, that's a bit of a mistake to make it so obvious that hey, it's China. Because, you know, for Russia, they're worried about China too. And they would like to tie our hands to make sure we would not be a problem. But to say to China, hey, you need us, um, not just, you know, kind of technology transfers, because, you know, everything that China's done on the military front seems to be, you know, kind of eerily similar to many of uh, the Russian military technological innovations that they've sold to China over the past period, you know, including the fighter jet and everything else that they've, <laughs> the Chinese have developed. A lot of reverse engineering and intellectual property theft going on there too. And I wouldn't be at all surprised to find that, you know, um, China's exfiltrated all of Russia's sensitive data, just like they have all of ours. Uh, so, you know, here is Russia has to prove to China that it's an equal, and it only can do that by beating up on us, but to a point so that it doesn't, you know, kind of trigger off anything that would be particularly disastrous. So I think, you know, while the Biden administration would like to manage this confrontation relationship with Russia to put it in a slightly better place, Russia wants to keep the level of confrontation it has and manage it and is constantly probing and testing to see how far it can go without triggering something really nasty. Because as to show to China, hey, we're the other big kid on the block. It's not just the United States. And it was interesting to see every time that President Trump, for example, said, oh, that hack, no, it probably, oh, it must have been China, or it could have been Iran, or maybe even North Korea. The Russians go, no, no, actually it was us. And instead of being quite quiet about it, they suddenly became very loud. Same with all the assassinations and all the, you know, other atrocities that they've carried out. They wanted to be noticed. Yes. I mean, that's, I mean, a very interesting point is that what lies underneath first what you said about, about Russia and a bit about China is that you get power, global power through the ability to cause pain and difficulty. And uh, Russia perhaps has to resort to some really unpleasant ways of doing it because they don't have better alternatives. Whereas in the US, there's another alternative because the US is still at the heart of the global, econ uh, global economy. And so it can cause difficulty if it wants to, it can uh, attain its, try to attain its policy goals through sanctions. But, uh, and the US is the world's premier sanction. But there, it isn't entirely straightforward, is it? Because the, the US has used the power of the dollar as um, to enforce its sanctions globally. And this is pretty deeply resented in the EU and elsewhere, particularly when it came to the JCPOA, which are on Iran, which uh, the EU and the UK wanted to uphold. And now this, uh, the extraterritorial sanctions have become a reason why 
the EU wants to be more strategically autonomous. How much awareness is there, do you think, in the American foreign policy community of this cost of American sanctions policy? There's a lot of awareness, actually. And if you look at um, uh, the Treasury um, under Mnuchin, I mean, I obviously, I would just suspect it's exactly the same under Janet Yellen and others as well. I mean, there was a, a willingness to use the sanctions and, um, you know, uh, but to be very careful about how they were applied. And I think that that actually is Nord Stream 2 is part of that as well. If you keep on sanctioning your allies, after a time, it's not just, as you're pointing out, the Chinese or the Russians who want to look for other instruments, cryptocurrencies or, you know, trying the renminbi or, you know, kind of some other basket of currencies to blunt the effect of uh, these extraterritorial sanctions. It becomes the French, the Germans, the Brits and, you know, everyone else. And that was a real concern. Um, you know, I was um, obviously in the heart of all of this for quite some time and, you know, seeing it in action. And it really was um, something that was on people's minds all the time. Of course, there's so much pressure to have sanctions on. I mean, right now, there's a lot of pressure coming from all kinds of circles to, you know, basically go after Russian um, debt, sovereign debt, um, you know, because that obviously would have a, a major impact. Uh, there was a lot of um, thinking uh, during the crisis with Venezuela and elsewhere about going after the energy sector and uh, at different points. And we saw with Rusal uh, when Deripaska was targeted that um, that you know had a lot of um, unintended consequences, putting under uh, a great risk all of the uh, aluminum, steel, and you know other uh, plants um, uh, that had been bought out by Russian oligarchs over a period of time that you know hadn't really been properly factored in because of a sort of a quick rush to go after you know, those who could be implicated in some way in events uh, around 2016 or more broadly. And, you know, kind of, of course, Russians have been major investors in US steel and in European steel plants, in aluminum, aluminium. I mean, I have to, I, 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 can't, I get everybody kind of makes fun of me in the United States when I say aluminium, and then I get the same thing. I should have said aluminium. <laughs> Remember my audience on this end, people smirking when you say that. Uh, they, um, you know, we, we, it was very, difficult to basically uh, carve out you know space for them not to be a problem and so in sanctions the only time when we're really truly effective is when we're acting in unity uh, with the Europeans and I think that uh, you know it was it was interesting when you make a con contrast between what happened over Ukraine after the shooting down of MH17 and uh, also after the annexation of Crimea where I think there was a lot of impact, and also after Skripal, where there was coordinated action uh, between the UK and the US governments, bringing on um, other you know, European actors as well, perhaps not as much as we'd have liked, but you know, behind a concerted action, that really got Russia's attention. But what happens usually when the US unilateral sanctions mandated by Congress or in response to um, you know, the push domestically in the US to do something, do something, why are you not sanctioning this, why are not sanctioning that? If it's not done in close coordination with the European uh, partners, it just gets a massive backlash, which is what happened with uh, Rusal and a lot of the oligarch sanctions. And immediately, you know, many of the European interlocutors said that those were not legitimate sanctions. And, and started to downplay what had happened in 2016 in the um, influence operation in the election. And that was, of course, fantastic for the Russians. It completely undercut, you know, the whole purpose. And the more then, you know, as you're pointing out that um, Europeans, you know, run to 
have alternative instruments. The JCPO was indeed a, a trigger point in that regard because of, uh, you know, again, the refusal to coordinate, um, for, you know, obviously um, in that case of refusal to coordinate, uh, that made things extremely difficult. So I think the lesson from that is that sanctions only really work when they're fully thought through and fully discussed and all of your partners on board, which of course then also makes it difficult to apply because, you know, the Russians and others who are the target of those sanctions will try to kind of pick off the weaker, you know, members of the pack. Yes. So, I mean, as you say, we are most effective when we work together, but in part because we've had the four years we've had in the US and for other reasons as well. We now have this new doctrine of strategic autonomy, or as it's sometimes called, depending on which national capital you're in, open strategic autonomy uh, in the EU. I mean, is this, uh, this new doctrine, uh, is this a cause of concern in Washington? Uh, or do people think, well, it's just a natural development, it's part of the way the EU's developing, and we should welcome it and learn to live with it? Well, uh, it's certainly, I think, a bit of a mixed bag precisely because of what did happen over the last four years and how things were framed. I mean, as we well know, going back multiple uh, presidencies, the United States was always kind of hoping that the European Union or European members of NATO would be more autonomous uh, and kind of there'd be a lot more burden sharing, division of labor. There was all kinds of different terms of art at different periods. Um, you know, the whole idea that, you know, Europe would be stepping up uh, and doing more in coordination with the United States. But it started to become framed in a more competitive manner, not just with Trump. But I mean, actually, previously, I would say as well. But over the four years of the Trump administration, it took on some pretty unfortunate dimensions. And part of that is, um, is, is in trade, and it's the, the, the linkage between trade and security. So everybody here will remember uh, Trump, I mean, who could really forget it, essentially saying that the EU was just as bad as China, was smaller, but and sometimes worse than China uh, on trade. But it, that also spilled over into the political front because Trump's view, and it's not a, a view that um, is solely um, applicable to him, it goes back actually for decades, back to much earlier presidents, you know, probably from the 50s and 60s onwards, when they looked at the kind of the trade imbalance between the United States and Europe and the stationing of uh, US troops abroad and, you know, the various um, costs of NATO uh, to the United States was always a kind of a question of a trade off between the US security guarantees and uh, the trade side of the ledger. And for Trump, this became really acute. His view was, he kept saying this, and of course, it wasn't true. We're paying for 100% of NATO you know, you're basically then ripping us off in terms of trade. His view was that if the United States was, it's rather a Roman Empire kind of view, if the United States were providing security protection, then it should have unfettered access, no um, trade barriers, you know, no um, differential regulations, you know, to the European market. And his view was he expressed this, you know, often very directly was, you know, after the well, World War II, we set all, yes, and sometimes it wasn't, you know, very pretty <laughs> he described it. You know, we set up all of this together. The idea was shared prosperity. This was kind of the thrust of it, though that wasn't quite how we expressed it. And so, you know, kind of in return for that, it was kind of worth it. You know, shared prosperity for our security, not anymore, you're ripping us off. And so the whole idea then of competition became the frame. And that's why he was so angry about uh, Germany. You know, you're competing as we ripping us off, wanted to slap Ottawa. 
throw tariffs on them all the time. You know, just, you know, we barely restrained from doing that. Always came within kind of a hair sliver of doing something on that front. And, you know, basically, um, you know, trying to get the Europeans to, you know, pick up the slack on the, the NATO front. But then, of course, the inevitable is uh, the strategic autonomy aspect where, you know, the, the discussion of the European army, remember there was a kind of a crosswise discussion after the armistice um, uh, commemorations, uh, you know, for World War One in Paris, where, you know, Trump and Macron had a bit of a standoff over the European army and then Macron explained, well, that's our contribution to NATO. It's not something separate. But of course it did morph into the defense industrial complex as well. The Eurofighter debates, you know, whether there would still be nuclear compatible, whether the United States would allow uh, Eurofighters to actually um, have uh, carry nuclear missiles. Well, was Europe going to start to produce all of its own military technology and no longer buy from the United States and on and on and on. So I think we've got ourselves into a bit of a bind in terms of our understandings and discussions of this issue because of the framing of competition. And, you know, obviously that's on so many different fronts in the digital sector. There was a lot of resentment in the United States and the way that was framed because it wasn't just about taxing uh, the, the digital um, the digital sector. And I think we've all agreed that, of course, they should be taxed. You know, Trump uh, resented, you know, the idea that the taxation would be, um, you know, applied and then used to say subsidize a digital sector in Europe. That didn't seem like fair competition. So, you know, there's all different ways in which we have to figure out how to have a sensible discussion about this. And it's that kind of competitive dimension without it becoming confrontational and competition, you know, kind of morphing into enmity in some ways in which, you know, was starting to happen in the last four years. So we have to figure out how we get back into having a civil discourse about this again. I mean, I, I thought it was incredibly unfortunate in the meetings that I was in the whole time that it just kept getting derailed into, you know, this basically mutual recriminations. Do you think Britain's departure from the EU has made the EU-US relationship more difficult? I do. Um, I mean, I mean, obviously, it was also kind of some awkward, somewhat awkward, um, even in the period when the UK was in the EU, as the United States tended to think of the UK as its proxy, which obviously wasn't a very healthy position for the United Kingdom to be in, to be frank. Uh, you know, the U US voice, and I'm sure that's how a lot of Europeans also saw the, the UK role. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, there's now been a bit of a vying, you know, for who can be the, you know, the United States, UK, is it Ireland, is it Denmark, is it, you know, the Netherlands, you know, as all kind of, there's been all kinds of potential contenders here. Well, the US doesn't shouldn't really need that, right? I mean, if the US has a, uh, you know, sensible uh, and, uh, you know, uh, let's just say kind of properly neutral relationship uh, with uh, the European Union. But the there are so many different layers here, I think, of, of difficulty. It's not just the role of London as the financial um, services centre and the mass investments that the United States had made, uh, had made in, um, uh, in, in London. It's obviously Northern Ireland and Ireland, uh, relationship, which is um, very meaningful. I mean, something that you worked on in the past, uh, Denzel, uh, for the the United States. You know, given its um, role in um, brokering or helping to broker, in any case, uh, all the uh, agreements and accords that um, you know changed the whole trajectory of um, a Northern Ireland and Ireland relationships. It's the you know kind of question about the whole future of uh, many of the security 
dimensions of those relationships, be it on the uh, Europol, uh, policing, uh, counter-terrorism, um, financial crimes, the sanctions. There are so many different areas here where there is a big question mark about how do you structure this? And I think that that's really a dilemma. Of course, it's been made it more difficult. So probably one last question to me, from me before we turn to questions from our audience. But drawing back a bit, this administration wants a foreign policy for the American middle class. Now, those of us looking at the United States from a difference can see that this is an administration for whom domestic and foreign policy and politics are even more closely interrelated than usual. So what does a foreign policy of the middle class mean? And how do the fragilities of today's American democracy that that's been sort of revealed over the past couple of years. How do they shape the Biden administration's priorities in their conduct of foreign policy? Well, look, in many respects, that was also the foreign policy choice for the Trump administration or for Trump. I mean, his concern was maintaining this base of voters in the American middle class in the old Rust Belt and in, you know, um, uh, states in the United States were at a demographic tipping point. I mean, basically, the United States has gone through a rapid um, phase of change demographically, uh, which, you know, the United Kingdom has as well, and some other European countries have, but perhaps not quite so acutely, although immigration, I would say, in Europe has, um, uh, you know, really in increased that pace of perceived change, uh, for sure, so I don't want to minimise that. But, um, you know, the, the kind of generational cohorts, I mean, they all have kind of labels and which are perhaps not so useful, but, you know, kind of invoke something in the UK and in, in the United States. We're, we're running out of letters of the alphabet for them. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, in this case, you know, you've got Generation Z, which is actually my daughter's, you know, generation, those born in the kind of late 2000s and onwards, my daughter's 14, which is the most diverse in US history. And by 2045, the United States will be majority minority meaning um, non-Hispanic white. I mean, all the labeling, you know, it's probably very confusing for anyone outside of the United States, but non-Hispanic white uh, will be in a minority, you know, for the first time, obviously, in um, US history, you know, since, um, you know, the Europeans first appeared, you know, back in the early um, 17th, uh, 17th century. So big change. And, you know, what you're also seeing is that demographic change is being laid on to the kind of change that we've already seen in Europe with deindustrialization from the 1980s onwards. I mean, the United States has a massive rust belt. There's huge inequality. There are vast swathes of the country that have been left behind uh, with uh, the, the change to a modern service uh, and then digital economy. And, you know, this is where um, the population is hurting. And it's where the, the base um, of President Trump is mostly located, the Midwest, uh, but also, you know, the parts of the whole Appalachian states extending up from, you know, sort of Alabama to Georgia, where it was used to be coal mining and steelworks and large auto manufacturing, the middle parts of the country, you know, rural areas and, uh, you know, the, the, the two coasts, um, you know, um, very much um, standing out there as kind of all the sort of centers of innovation and also of productivity. So just like Hillary Clinton's vote, Joe Biden basically won most of his votes in the most productive, economically advanced parts of um, the, the United States, although there was a bit of a, a bit of a switch. So, um, you know, to basically try to knit the country back together again, because that inequality, just like in every other country in Europe, has become fodder for populist politics. But also in the case of the United States, that was the fodder that the Russians used in 2016 
and continues to be able to be exploited by anyone who you know wants to kind of play a role in US politics, either domestic or foreign, and it reduces massively US comp uh, competitiveness because the, the, the basis of collective action is out the window. I mean, we see that on the pandemic and we can see that on you know pulling behind on some of these key bills on infrastructure and uh, economic development. And so that is where it becomes extraordinarily important for foreign policy as well, because we can see how popular it was to have withdrawal from Afghanistan, as well as from Iraq. The forever wars, which have been dragging down the American heartland in terms of the, the troops who were fighting in those wars, but in terms of also the trillions of dollars that were spent elsewhere, rather than back at home. It's the same debate in the United Kingdom. And frankly, a very similar debate in France uh, with the Gilets jaunes and the massive inequality between Paris and perhaps the, you know, the rest of the country. In Germany, between East and West Germany, and with um, some of the other lender there. Uh, you know, there, there, this is a debate that other countries are having as well. And I think that there is a way of meshing those two together. There are lots of discussions now, certainly in academic and policy circles, about how we could actually work with European partners for thinking about how some of our trade and other relationships could be targeted at perhaps um, a levelling up agenda. Um, I don't know if it's quite used that, but you know, thinking about the UK of trying to sort of, you know, figure out how we could have more links between regions uh, that could, you know, help to sort of bolster. Uh, prosperity for people in the heartlands rather than just the kind of the usual ways in which the kind of big companies and others are focused in you know all of the areas that are already uh, prospering but you know this is still a work in progress obviously um, Jake Sullivan uh, Biden's national security advisor in his period out of office uh, wrote a proposal for uh, foreign policy for the middle class but everyone's still feeling their way through this but I do think that that's an area of very useful debate uh, between the UK and the United States, and certainly between the EU and the United States, because of the EU focus on regions and regional development. If I could uh, finish by asking you a couple of quick fire questions from our audience. Um, first, on the trade and uh, tech, transatlantic trade and tech council that's just been uh, agreed, do you think that's going to have real potential to, to achieve some proper uh, coordination, cooperation between the EU and the US? Well, it could. Um, I mean, that's the theory, right? I mean, I think it's again gets back to who you've got working on this and whether you manage to create these kind of flex, flexible entities to manage it. Um, you know, I don't think that the Biden administration, once they get the people in place, are going to be kind of cycling through people every five minutes, which is, you know, what happened in the Trump administration, because a lot could have been achieved if, you know, there hadn't been this constant change of personnel, even under the, you know, the, the Trump era with the European Union. So I do think that there is a lot of potential there with the right people in place and, again, flexible um, institutional arrangements, task forces and others that bring in you know, kind of a, a different constellation of players, you know, once the whole agenda is, um, is worked out. The problem is timing. I mean, we're already, what, seven months in uh, to the new administration. We have elections in France and in um, Germany coming up. This is always the dilemma. And that's, again, where I think that one should look at regions because we see the national agenda keeps changing with administrative changes, but the agendas and the needs of regions don't change they remain the same and so is there a way that we could set something up at the mayoral and mayoral and governor level in the united states with counterparts in the in the european union as well i mean i do think if we think about it creatively we can make something happen here 
I think that's a really interesting point on sort of deepening and broadening dialogue and structuring it. And then finally, one last question from our audience, which is um, that uh, given that there's a disparity of power between China and Russia, uh, given that Russia didn't accept being a junior partner of the US and the US and the West, why would the relationship with China be different? Yes. <laughs> that is the big question, isn't it? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that that is the, the dilemma. I mean, we're going to have to really figure out how we manage uh, that relationship with China again together. And I mean, I, I don't think that there is, despite all of the rhetoric, a massive appetite in the United States to having a kind of a, a structured confrontation with China on all these different dimensions. I think there really is a desire to kind of figure out how you again manage that relationship in a meaningful way. I mean, there is the problem of how do you address all of the abuses uh, that China is perpetrating, not just the predatory economic and investment practices, which I do think that we can you know, head off effectively together, you know, particularly when we have structures to look at um, all the various kind of contract tracks and agreements that countries and other entities uh, enter into with China, we can kind of head off some of these problems. I mean, we're all trying to kind of figure out what to do with the poor, you know, Montenegrins and others who, you know, kind of got into the hock early on before we were actually properly attentive to all of this, but we can learn from those mistakes. I think the bigger problem is how do we handle what China is doing with the Uyghurs, you know, in Tibet, uh, the pressure that it's applying on Taiwan, and uh, you know the other uh, territorial disputes that it's engendered around in the um, Indo-Pacific region. You know how do we work further afield, not just um, with ourselves on the transatlantic context, where you know some of China's impact can be blunted. I think certainly in the economic and IP and technological domains, but of that other pressure that China is exerting globally as well as regionally. I think that's going to be a real problem. How do we work with the Indians, the Japanese, the Australians, you know, and others in that context as well? So I think we have to figure that out too. And that, of course, will be problematic for the European Union because, you know, they tend to kind of want to shy away from some of these more security focused. And then the question is really about NATO as well. So we're trying to work that out. But I do think our aim should be to manage the relationship with China, not to manage our way into a confrontation. And so what can we learn from the experiences as the questioner suggests of how we've you know kind of botched perhaps <laughs> at times the relationship with Russia and you know previously with the Soviet Union and what can we take away from that that might um, lead us to be a bit more sophisticated in our approach to China. Fiona thank you very much indeed you have been completely fascinating um, I only wish we could take a, another hour or two of your time but that'll have to do for now so thank you very much indeed and uh, thank you to our audience listening to such, at least to me, such an interesting series of answers. Thanks so much, Denzel, and every best wish to everyone. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.